pray, guys. Father, we're glad to be able to gather together tonight. We thank you for your love for us in Christ. We thank you for your grace and your power in our lives, Lord. And we continue to ask that you would guide us to all wisdom and to the truth of the gospel in every aspect of our lives, that when we're just emotional, when we're fearful, when we're uh, uncertain, when we're downtrodden, when we're tired, or when we are really enjoying everything else but the gospel, Lord, we are so glad that you, as our great Father, remind us of your sovereign grace. And so we pray that as we look a little bit more tonight in the letter of James, that we would be reminded of, of who you are. Father, we would be reminded of how amazing your love is, that there is no way possible that we could ever fulfill your righteousness in ourselves, even if you give us the power we would still throw it away. So all power and all glory belongs to you. You preserve us to the very end through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who purchased us. And by your great love, we are made aware of it through the gift of faith that even though we throw it away a lot and it wanes and our flesh and mind is tossed to and fro, Lord, we will not remain those. Remain that way. We will not remain in those seasons of life that, that hinder us from rejoicing. But through intimacy and through your word, we will be reminded of your great, graceful, powerful mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I want to do something a little bit strange tonight. It's going to be different from how I approach the text uh, typically in our reading. But in James chapter 1, uh, we've spent a good amount of time now dealing with the fact that we can ask God for wisdom. We can look to the Word of God. We can prayerfully request that God give us wisdom. And God gives wisdom through the hearing of His Word by the Spirit. We've, we've been reminded that if we know what the Word says, and James is going to actually say this, we know what the Word says, but then we don't do it, <laughs> we're, we're really living a fruitless life, a workless life. I want to remind us also that the book of James by a lot of false professors, by a lot of false gospel purveyors, has been used as a way of proving who is regenerate and who is not. The book of James does not have anything to do with who is regenerate and who is not, who has been saved by the work of Christ and who has not. It has everything to do with are we, as the beloved of God, as those who are the saints, as those who are the body of Christ, are we living an active and lively faith? Do we have a lively faith, not a dead faith? A dead faith, according to James, is not one that is, um, it, that is damnable. A dead faith is one that is not working. It's dead. It's not alive. It's not doing anything. So a dead faith would be, yes, I know that I'm in Christ, but oh well, not doing anything. That's not about regeneration. It's not. So those who preach that James is a test of salvation are abusing the gospel, and it makes the gospel not good news anymore. It's not good news to hear, unless you have these things, you're lost in your sins. Uh, it is good news to hear, you are not dead in your sins because of what Christ has done. Therefore, let's think about how we should live according to, one, uh, according to the gospel among each other. And I want to emphasize some things over the, this week and next week. I'm going to talk about it again next week, um, about double-mindedness, because I think that we often put that double-mindedness in the way of what we would call theology. For example, some people think that you're double-minded when you think this way about doctrine or, or specific go, go, uh, 
theological thing, and then all of a sudden you think this way about it, and you're just being double-minded. That's not what double-minded is. That's not what double-tongue is. Double-mindedness is having a divided heart, a divided loyalty. It has nothing to do with what you're thinking. It's what you're doing. It's where your affections and your rest sit. And so I want to give some examples of what that is. This week I want to look at, um, at the life of, uh, not the life, but the, the, the text of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19. We're going to go there in a minute. But I want to look at Saul. I want to look at David and Saul and their relationship because I think this is a good example of double-mindedness. Someone who is not able to hold fast to the wisdom of God, even though they know it, but they in turn do differently despite what they say they know. A quick illustration in John's Gospel, when we see Jesus raise Nicodemus from the dead in chapter 12, we see the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, we see the leaders of the Jews say some interesting things. It says there that many believed in Him and in His name, but because of the authorities and the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus goes on to teach us through this evangelist, John, that there is something strange when a person can look at Jesus and look at the gospel, look at things and say, okay, we know He is the one come from God because look what He does, like Nicodemus. We know that He raised this man for the only God can give sight to the blind, only God can give legs to the lame, only God can give tongue to the mute, only God can give life to the dead. We know this man is Messiah, but we're not going to receive Him. We're not going to accept Him. So there are a lot of times where people will have a knowledge of the truth and truly believe that it is true, but not rest in the sufficiency of its truth. And we rest in the person of Christ, not in the knowledge of Him academically. The knowledge of Him academically is not post-conversion. It comes along at the moment of conversion to whatever degree God has permitted and allowed it depending upon how we think and what information is actually read to us and taught to us from the Scripture. But ultimately, in the end of it all, that which the Scripture testifies concerning the Son, the believer, will believe it. And not just say that it's true in its factual sense, but rest in Him who is the truth. See, faith is not about knowing the right information. Faith is about resting in the right person. Jesus Christ the righteous. So then we learn and we grow and we understand more and more how to exercise this faith which is divinely given. Because, beloved, let me tell you something. All of us would agree that if we were to say, uh, answer the question, have you ever had a really strong faith? Yes, we've had a strong faith. There's been times where I feel like I was just walking right with the Lord. Nothing bothered me. I wasn't upset. I wasn't worried. I wasn't fearful. And then, likewise, and the opposite, there's times where we could say we had a really poor faith. And as a matter of fact, we probably would say that our poor faith seasons have, been, have outnumbered our strong faith seasons. So if our faithfulness in resting in the knowledge of Christ is our hope, then that is a misplaced faith. That is what we call faith in our faith or faith in our understanding or faith in our knowledge rather than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a divine gift. So the Scripture says here in James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, we're going to just deal with the sense of this, and then we're going to go look at, Sam, at Saul and David. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. In other words, let him rest in the answer. Let him rest in the, in the certainty. Let him rest in the promises. Let him rest in the sufficiency of the gospel. Let him rest then in the sufficiency of the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ, who teaches the church through the apostles' instructions. Let him rest without doubting. For one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he received anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is unstable in all his ways. Okay. Now, many of us could say, okay, I felt unstable. I mean, I felt unstable recently. There's times that I feel unstable. Unstable physically, unstable financially, unstable emotionally, unstable spiritually. Depending on what's going on and who's saying what and what I've been having to deal with or what I'm thinking about or where my focus is. But when it comes to double-mindedness, we need, to, we need to think about some of these examples, and I think it will help us to see not just the double-mindedness of the Pharisees. They absolutely knew the truth, but they refused to rest because they've not been granted that gift of regeneration. They've not been granted that gift of repentance to have a change of disposition, spiritually speaking, that's not dependent upon the flesh. And so here, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And the scripture here talks about David and Jonathan and Saul and others. And what has happened here is that David has led the, the army of Israel in victory through God's work through him against the Philistines. And the Philistines were defeated. In chapter 17, verse 55, it says, As soon as Saul, 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 that's Saul, Saul, David... <laughs> Go out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your slave, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay, so here we know the story of David and Goliath. We see God had ordained and purposed David to be the king. And out of David's kingship and out of David's historical record, we are to see not just the, the, the picture of what a true king is and should be and must be. We're to see the picture of what a true sinner is. And we're to see the picture in type of what Christ is. And we learn that from the life of David. And then we see chapter 18, and we see that David and Jonathan had a friendship, a soulmate friendship, an intimacy as brothers like no other. And then it says there in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David in his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's slaves and servants. And as they were coming home, verse 6, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David 
his tens of thousands. And then Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can, ha- what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing with lyre, and as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from him, from him, from Saul. So Saul removed from him the presence, from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and all Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. (coughs) And then we see in verse 17, and I won't go through all of this, but verses 17 all the way through the end of the chapter, Saul tries to do things and earn his trust and secure him in certain ways and offer him his daughters and all of this stuff to try to secure him against taking the kingdom. And in verse 30 of 18 it says, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to the battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And then verse 19, chapter 19, look at verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to his Saul, his father, and he said to him, Let not this king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, quote, As the Lord lives, he, David, shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord God came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David again to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. And then we see the remainder of this all the way in through the ends of several chapters where Saul makes it his mission to kill David and to put David to the wall, to pin him to the wall with his spear. Now, in the context of James' epistle, we see this reality that a double-minded man is unstable in all his his ways. And if there was ever an unstable, double-minded man in Scripture, King Saul was one. King Saul was a man who was appointed by God to be the king, the ruler of Israel. He was appointed by God to be the victorious against the nations who opposed God and his nation. And yet we see God choosing that which is humble, choosing that which was small, choosing that which was lowly, choosing that which was unloved and unknown to become the great thing, 
to bring victory through, for His name. And we know the story of David, and we know the story of Saul, we know the stories that, that the Bible teaches us, and we come to the reality that Saul is the epitome of double-mindedness. And so because of that, James the Apostle, speaking with all authority of the divine, says that that man can expect to get nothing from the Lord. And when we come to the story of David and Saul, we see that Saul was driven to double-mindedness because of jealousy. Jealousy. And I don't know about all of you, but I can tell you in my life, I have seen this time and time again where someone was jealous of another and it drove them to hatred. It drove them to suspicion. It drove them to murder. Another reason that people fall into this this double-mindedness is fear. Fear. Some people are fearful of certain things. Another cause of it is, is insecurity. Another cause of it could be just simply thinking much of oneself. You might think, how does that? Well, if we think we're more spiritual than someone else, we are automatically double-minded. Because we believe that what we are and what we have and what we know and what we can do and what we can accomplish, even with the, quote, Lord's help, is greater than God Himself. And that if we are interacting in a circumstance or in a situation, then we could produce an outcome different than what God could produce in His sovereign power. And so we become double-minded when we have a different affection, a different focus, a different purpose, or that our actions and words are driven by something that is not biblical. The Scripture shows us this double-mindedness of Saul. And here is Saul, the king, the supreme, if I can say so, the sovereign of the nation of Israel. He is God's representative to rule. And yet this young boy, by the power of God, never in in any way was David ever halted. He did not say, who are you talking about? Who are you talking? Do you know who you're messing with? And he did not show the Philistines who he was. He showed the Philistines who his God was. He says, this day my God will strike you down with my hand and I will cut off your head with your sword and the birds of heaven will eat out your eyes. And what does this giant do? Laughs and says, Who do you think you are? Are you Jews? Are you Israelites thinking I'm a dog that you can come at me with a stick and shoo me away? And he laughs boldly. And God sends a stone into his forehead and kills the giant. And he is defeated. But David was not haughty. David was not concerned about what it did for him. He stood as God's sword. Now I'll say this, because some people will say, well, you know what, I'm God's sword. No, you aren't. God's sword is Jesus Christ. God's sword is the living word of Jesus Christ. God's sword are the written papers and the letters of the apostles in their histories. The sword of God now is the supernatural work of His written Word that does far beyond what any man could ever do in his debates or his arguments or with his own might. And if we don't agree on that, we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 and we can really get to the bottom of that. There is no one called of God this day who who walks on two legs, nor sees with two eyes, nor breathes with two lungs, who is the sword of heaven. No man has ever been called of God after the apostles to be his defender, to be his mouthpiece, 
except that we continually teach that which has already been taught. So that is what we do. Saul became jealous. Even though David, what David did for Saul was for Saul's good. David showed the power of God. David humbly defeated God's enemies by his power. And the list goes on and on. People worshipped the Lord because of what God did through David and the king got credit for it. But because it esteemed David greater through the natural evidence of what he did, he, he, he killed more people, if you will, it became a contest. And jealousy calls, caused Saul to hate David. But yet there's a mediator in this. There's a mediator because what Saul did was he became double-minded. And we see, as we saw there in the end of 19, God sent a spirit then to torment Saul and to cause him to fall deeper into his fleshly division, into his double-mindedness. And Saul decreed that David should die. Now imagine that. For no reason, Saul wanted David to suffer. Saul wanted David to die. Saul wanted David to, do, to, 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 to not be around anymore because he took the light off of him. That's double-mindedness. God had decreed and done and purposed His way and it did not please Saul because it was not Saul's way. It did not return and turn out in the way that Saul thought that it should. So in response, he became angry. In response, he became vindictive. In response, he became frustrated. In response, he became fearful. In response, he became wicked to the DNA of his soul. And decides he needs to destroy David. Well, what is the remedy of that? Just like Jesus would say in Matthew 18, the remedy of, of, of offenses is reconciliation to which I am sorry, forgive me, is the end of all sin because Christ has satisfied the wrath of God for all sin so that I am sorry, forgive me, is the end of it all. Yet I have seen, if I've seen once, I've seen 50 times in my life where someone would offer repentance or forgiveness or say, please forgive me, I did not mean to hurt you. Or I've changed my mind about these things only for the person supposedly who was the victim to become the enemy. Because they didn't want to accept the response of, I'm sorry, forgive me. They wanted blood. Beloved, you can tell who is sent by the Spirit of God and who is sent by the Spirit of hell by the fact that they will receive or not receive someone's confession of forgiveness and repentance. It doesn't mean that you're lost. It means that you're sinful. You see? Christians sin. And Christians sin mightily. David, of course, did. And in the midst of that, it is why the Scriptures say that David is a man after God's own heart. Not when he was destroying the Philistines. Not when he was worshiping in the temple. No, when he was committing adultery and murder and deceit. So that we could see that it is God's grace alone that declares a man good, not a man's actions. But double-mindedness is a very deceitful thing. It can come upon us in a, in a very quick way to the point that we don't know it's there. That's why it's called deceit. And we realize that and we start to think that we're spiritual. Saul, as the king, thought he was spiritual. But what was the result? 
What was the remedy of Saul and his wicked hatred toward David? The word of the Lord in truth. His son Jonathan, who loved David, went to the king and said, Why are you coming against your servant? What has he done to you? Have you not benefited from his service to you? Has the nation not been blessed by David? It's sort of like what I see sometimes when people come against the gospel. Come against God's people. Come against God's pastors who preach the gospel. And men and women come to know the truth through the teaching of those people. And then they slap them in the face and bite them and stab them in the back because there's something they don't like. Something doesn't go their way. Something irks them and they want to be the defender of God. They think they're the sword, but really they're not. They're dull and they're toothless. And they spit and they snarl and they want vengeance and it's not of the Lord. Yet the very thing that softened Saul's heart at that moment was he was told by his son, why are you trying to do harm to the very man who blessed you? You ever blessed somebody? You ever ministered to someone? You ever taught the Word of God to somebody? Have you ever encouraged someone in a time in their life and, and, and you gave everything that you had and then they ate it right up and just got fat and lazy with everything that you gave them as, of, as from the Lord? It wasn't ours to give. It was the Lord's, but He used us and then that person would turn against you. Yes, we've all had it. We've all had it. And then we go to that person we say, listen, the Word of God says we need to deal with this this way. And they go, I'll hear not of it. That's a double-minded man. They can expect nothing from the Lord. And beloved, I eventually, I see in the Scripture, and I can see it over and over again, but the time we have tonight, I don't want to labor all these proof texts. But you can check for yourself. There are times in the Scripture where God will destroy a believer. He will let them sit in the mire of their own sin. He will allow discipline to carry them down <laughs> to the depths of misery. And sometimes believers die. Sometimes believers die. Look at Jonah as a primary example. Where's the end of that story? Jonah's not a part of it because he's not important. The ministry is important. The gospel is important. The purposes of God are important. The word of God is important. The, the truth is important. But Jonah is not important. Yet Jonah was a bitter soul that God just let him remain in his bitterness as far as the story goes. But even then, in the day of reckoning, Jonah will rejoice. He'll rejoice with gladness not feeling guilty of all of his bitterness and frustration and wishing God had done things his way, but he will rejoice in knowing that God in his sovereignty has kept him from wrath and can rejoice because Christ has bore his sins in his own body. And so this double-minded man, you might say, well, how's he double-minded? Well, he loved David, then he loved the work of the ministry and the work of the kingdom and the work of God through David, and then all of a sudden, he didn't like David anymore. And he wanted David dead. And then the son goes in and says, Hey, Father, you are sinning because of what you're doing. You are evil in your heart. And then he changed his mind. And then he loved David again until war started again. And David was victorious in his ministry. David was obedient in the call of God to do that which God had called him to do. 
and it gave praises not to Saul, and Saul's mind changed again. Beloved, let me tell you something. Believers can see change in their lives back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're thinking that, you're, that that fickleness is not a possibility for you, whoa, hold on to the reins. Because when that wild horse of life starts bucking from the back, you're going to fall off. And you're going to change your mind. And when he settles down and starts trotting through green pastures and uh, aside beautiful water lakes and things of that nature, you'll be thinking, I got this under control. I love life. And then it's going to start bucking again and you're going to go, wow, what have I done? I hate life. We are as fickle as the wind. And thank God that, we don't, that our fickleness is not condemnation. But let's not call it what it's not. Let's not call it just, even though it is normal unto man, let's call it what it is. It is sin. And it happens, and it's destructive, and it's terrible. But we are those who will seek after the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is found only in the Word of God. And so everything that is necessary for us to understand, 1,000% no is listed in the pages of this text in its clarity. It doesn't have to be inferred. It does not have to be distinguished. It does not have to be logically reasoned out to any exponential idea. It is clearly taught, black and white, simply expressed, and the expression and that proclamation of these things, according to the work of Christ for His people, is good news. And this good news includes the fact that Jesus Christ, though He had two natures, had one single-mindedness, and that is He wanted to do the will of the Father. And He not only wanted to do the will of the Father, He trusted in the promises of the Father. Not only did He trust in the promises of the Father, He knew the power of the Father, so He resolved and stood firm. And our anchor is Jesus Christ. Our single-mindedness is Jesus Christ. The remedy for fickleness in the life of the believers, beloved, is the gospel. It's not trying to be like David or learning from the context of Saul. It's not trying to talk therapeutically through the idea of, of why we have bitterness. We have bitterness because we're sinful. We have bitterness because of unbelief. We have fear because of unbelief. We have frustration because of unbelief. Christ is faithful when we are faithless. This is the hope of the believer. So because of that, then we can look at the Word of God and say, Okay, Lord, I know that I'm going to fall on my face. I know that I'm going to have problems. I know that I'm going to be in need of wisdom. You'll give it freely without reproach. I need to ask. The answer is here. Be in the Word of God. Now, a lot of people will say to me, well, Pastor, I read the Bible. I'm in the Bible several times a day or, you know, at least three or four times a week. Great. Are you reading it or are you trying to dig out your own wisdom and make it work for you as proof texts? Are we reading it? Are we listening? One of the great things about James's letter is that we see there that when we don't listen to the Scripture that He's writing, we don't listen to the letter He's written. We're double-minded. And the first step of that is humility. Look at verse 9 of James 1. Let the lowly brother, let the poor man, let the poor brother 
boast in his exaltation. That means let the poor brother find all his boasting in Christ. He has been exalted with Christ. And let the rich man exalt in the fact that his riches are nothing in comparison to Christ. So there's a humiliation there. And this is a real important thing for James. Now put Saul and David in the midst of that. David, this poor man who had nothing, who ends up being the rich man who has everything, who takes from the poor man who had nothing. You see the picture when he takes Bathsheba? Isn't it the very, the very you know, uh, illustration that Nathan gives David? It was a man who had thousands of sheep and a man who had one sheep and loved it like a child. And the man who had thousands of sheep took and stole the man's one sheep killed him. <laughs> who is this man? He must die for his wickedness and his greed and his selfishness. Nathan says, you are the man. And David says, I've sinned against God. So here's David, this nothing, nobody's nothing, becoming triumphantly, exalting in being elect and being chosen by God and being empowered by God. And here is the great king who rages. Beloved, we're, we're, we're always in one of these two places in our minds. We should never, ever take lightly the subtle arrogance that we call contentment to know that we got it all right and we're doing right. Because that in and of itself is double-mindedness. That in and of itself is double-mindedness. Let the lowly brother exalt, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Why does it matter? Because this life doesn't matter. This human existence doesn't matter except that we have a purpose in the whole scheme of eternal purposes. The whole idea of God's work and His promises. The sun will scorch and wither the flowers and wither the grass and it will be no more, and the beauty of all that we see in the fields shall perish, perish, so will those who are rich in the midst of our pursuits. Beloved, let me say something. And we'll get into rich and poor economics as we continue in this text, but I want to move on into the rest of this letter and the months to come. But sometimes it is that we can trust in our riches or feel good because of what we have in material things. But sometimes we can feel good and trust in our knowledge of things or in how we think of things or in our ability to process things or in our ability to see things. And God in an instant can take it away. He can take it away. Let us not boast. Let us not boast. Yes, we thank God for our understanding. Yes, we thank God for His wisdom. Yes, we thank God that we have been given the gift to understand and to discern. But beloved, the minute we take these things, these gifts of God, and we put them on our trajectory into our calendar, into our essential plan, and think that it's going to affect change in the lives of others, we have sorely misunderstood the context of what is being taught here. God does not need our arguments. He does not need our debates. He does not need our experiences. He does not need our abilities. He does not need anything. God is not looking for people who are able to tactfully illustrate certain things, tell stories a certain way, or do anything in themselves. I've heard it said many times over, 
in many different areas of life from many different people talking of many different... Oh, that person is so gifted. That person is so talented. And that's true. But when it's related to spiritual things, that is a mockery of God. It is a mockery of grace. There's nobody talented in the things of God. There's nobody that has been given great gifts in the, in the sense of themselves. We are the gifts. We are the gifts to one another. We must put each other ahead of ourselves. And when we have a weaker brother or sister, a weaker faith, a person of despair, a person who is as fickle as the, road, the day is long, we must patiently humble ourselves to be the gift for them. And what is that giftedness? To remind them. As Paul would say about the pastor teachers of the church in Ephesians, he said that God gives gifts to men. who teach and who preach. The prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers in order, verse 12 of Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ, to equip the saints until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That means resting together in sufficiency of Christ and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. What, how, how do we know we've matured when we look exactly like Jesus in glorification? So that means there is no end to this growing. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine. Beloved, it is a common thing for believers to be carried around by every wind of doctrine. And I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it powerfully right now so that it can be on record. Anyone who tells you that a believer cannot be carried around by every wind of doctrine is either or both ignorant or, or demonic. Ignorant of what the Scripture teaches or trying to twist Scripture by the guile of the enemy to tell people that there's no hope for them because of their fickleness. Do not be carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what a scheme is? Putting together an argument that makes sense and causing people to follow after the argument and go, so I believe that, that's good. It doesn't matter what we believe. It matters what God's Word says. The wise man rests in the sufficiency of God's instruction from His Word while the fool continues to make concessions based on what they don't like, what they don't understand, or what they cannot apprehend. But for us, beloved, we hold fast. Not because of us, not in the power of our flesh, but by the power of grace. The Holy Spirit of God brings us back to correction, brings us back to the center brings us back to the awareness of the gospel, shows us our error. We are forgiven. We forgive one another. And then when we are growing in this way, see, growth by, it, by definition requires brokenness, illness, weakness, smallness, malnourishment. We grow by the fact that we are so fickle sometimes. 
And then when we grow to a place of stability, we realize that our, that our anchor is Christ. He is the one who is our steadfast hope. And then we are helping others come down that very narrow way so that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, from which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, Paul says, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up and there's a means through which and a purpose for which it grows itself up and that is love. If God the Almighty took on flesh and died in the place of His elect to prepare them for the presence of righteousness by giving Him their, by giving them His then we likewise should be about the business of giving ourselves for one another with great patience. So beloved, rest. And when people are not available and they're not willing to receive our ministry, we just wait until they are. We pray for them and we continue to prepare to give ourselves. And then in doing that, we will not be double-minded. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for Your gift of Your Word, for the gift of Your Son, and Lord, while there may be a million different thoughts of applying these things, the things that we've learned, these examples that we see in Scripture, Lord, I pray that most of all it would be beneficial for us to reflect on this, that it would be beneficial for us to think about these things, that we would be mindful and prayerful of one another, that we would be eager, Lord, to consider one another in life, and Father, that we would be very eager to rest in the fullness of Your wisdom. Lord, I pray for those who are stuck in fear and fickleness. I pray for those who are stuck in arrogance. Lord, because it could be us tomorrow. It could be me this very moment as I finish this prayer. Lord, if it weren't for Your mercy, we would destroy ourselves. We would fall away before the end of the, of the breath. Lord, help us not to, to, bend, to, to, to depend upon ourselves, not only for the truth of the gospel that says that we cannot be righteous except your righteousness be credited to us. But Father, help us not to depend upon ourselves to be the, to be the gospel winners and the mediators and the peacekeepers. For you are the true peace. Christ is the giver of life and the true peace. He is our Passover. He is our Sabbath. So help us to rest in Him. And until we're able... Lord, keep us and keep us knitly together, closely and intimately together in spirit and in mind until we are able to be together ultimately in the flesh and one day glorified forever in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.